Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well, and kind of just to leap straight into the news, um, mm-hmm. our um, wish to have two weeks off um, not talking about um, sexual assault stories coming out of Hollywood turned out to be like too, too good to be true. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, this is, of course, in reference to the story that was in the New York Times about Uma Thurman. It was an interview with uh, her conducted by Maureen Dowd in which she talked about her experiences being harassed and assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, which probably, which what didn't really come as that much of a surprise because I think there was genuine, generally, it was accepted that something had happened there because she had posted that Instagram post of her as the bride talking, you know, like... Uh, about like vengeance and and wishing a special ill will on Harvey Weinstein last year, but then there was a whole extra part of it about her kind of creative partnership with Quentin Tarantino and how uh, that soured in what sounds like a very terrible way and, and involved her being very badly injured in a car accident that took place on the set of uh, Kill Bill where she was driving a stunt car the stunt went very very wrong and she's uh, suffered from serious kind of uh, repercussions of that in, in the years since mm. and it's, it's worth noting like there's um something to be said for the for the article itself which is is really kind of badly put together um mm. in the sense it's really i've read it twice through one after the other and, and there's still elements of it that seem really vague and kind of glossed over which really shouldn't have been it, it reads more of like a kind of like very relaxed profile of someone rather than being a piece of journalism about something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There are parts of it which do feel as if they're going like, what's a fun turn of phrase we could use here about a love triangle? It's like, this is maybe, you're maybe not approaching the horribleness of this story and the kind of moral weight of the situation with the you're not giving it the attention that it really needs. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting for a few reasons. One, I mean, we kind of knew it was coming because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Uma Thurman had, had, had intimated previously that she had something to say but would save it until she 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 could, you know, give it its full attention. Mm-hmm. But it's what's remarkable about it is is to see how... Ordinarily, if a revelation came out that something like during the during the shooting of Kill Bill, let's say, like we found out in the in the uh, in the article, Tarantino was said to have played the off-camera roles where uh, Michael Madsen's character spits in the bride's face and another character chokes her with a chain, mm. and pre finding out about the Weinstein stuff, that is, you can actually, in some way, understand that when you put an actress who is, or an, any actor in a position that's difficult on set, it kind of makes sense to have someone you trust, like a friend, do some of the off-camera stuff if it is kind of um, difficult to to do, perhaps with someone you're not as comfortable with. Mm. And I understand that. However, framed by the the Weinstein revelations and the fact that this whole shoot of Kill Bill 2 appeared to have turned into some kind of grotesque power play. 
mm. in which Uma Thurman was being compromised left, right and centre in order to either have the relationship hush, hushed up to the degree that she is put in. And you said it was a stunt car. It was eventually a stunt car. It wasn't supposed to be a stunt car. It's just yeah, it's been go- converted. Yeah, it's a car that has been rigged to have cameras on it, which suddenly is not a car anymore because, mm. it, you know, most cars in films are uh, rigged to a, you know, a, like at the back of a pickup and someone else is driving it while you're shooting on it. But they kind of asked her to do it drive at 40 miles an hour so her hair would look right and she wasn't comfortable mm. but they pressured her into doing it and she did it and she crashed because yeah. that's not a job that someone other than a stunt driver should do and the whole thing now reads really really poorly mm. against every single fucker involved because now not only is there a sexual assault story at the heart of it there is what appears to have been like a long friendship and creative partnership. Uh, Tarantino has always talked about Uma Thurman as being like his kind of muse, I guess. And mm. now it turns out that it was, I don't know. I mean, this is all down to how badly the piece is written, but at worst you can read that piece and think that Tarantino has essentially been torturing Uma Thurman for years. Yeah, because that's another thing. There's a lot of context that's left out. Uh, I think April Wolf pointed this out on Twitter, that the specific paragraph in which Dowd writes about like, Oh, you know, she, he spat in her face and all this sort of stuff. There's no sense of like this was something he did with other actors, mm. or this was this is something that he had a habit of doing, or this was a thing that he specifically only did to Uma Thurman, which then casts it in a very different light. Because you know, I think there are like plenty of directors who would like want to step in to do things, maybe not something that kind of violent. But, you know, you, you read about, like, Ridley, Hot, Ridley Scott's hands being the shadow of the face-hugging aliens and things like that. There are directors who like to kind of, like, step in and do, a, like, one or two things that makes feels like, you know, makes the film a little more personal that they can point to and say, yeah, that's me doing that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, um, like, Scorsese putting himself in cameos or whatever. But without the context of this, you can't tell if, like, okay, this is, like a thing that Tarantino did that was just kind of generally weird? Or was this specifically about him having a very abusive partnership with Uma Thurman, which to the world outside was kind of presented as this more kind of mutual give and take. And this thing that Thurman herself seems to be saying was at one point more kind of mutual and them kind of having more of a rapport, but then that breaking down, understandably in the way uh, in the light of you know the stuff that went on on the kill bill set mm. it kind of it's now slipping more into the kind of hitchcock tippy hedron uh, area which mm. is a deeply uncomfortable place to put it yes you're making great art but at what cost yeah. and i mean at what cost is a great question because we've talked many times about how Many of the men in these stories will their their careers will recover. They will be mm. fine, which is like the point at which a lot of the 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 uh, initiatives and things is to to make it. So that's not okay, and it shouldn't be. But Tarantino will be fine. Like yeah. he is he is so ingrained in the culture of filmmaking post nineteen ninety one that he is pretty much untouchable. I would have thought unless there was some super specific allegation that he, he did something you know that he was solely responsible for like an assault or something then yeah then he is kind of going to be fine and, you know the the news this week has been about the whole 
Uma Thurman's story, but then also like excitement at the casting of you know his movie that's ironically going to feature Roman Polanski as a character mm. <laughs> in his new movie, and just like oh man, this is I don't know, is this really unsavory now? Yeah, for me, it has made me kind of reconsider the way that I and lots of other people, but but the way that I as well kind of view those kind of stories about, you know, directors who are crazy on set and things like that. And I think if you think about someone like that, there is a, there is a tendency, I think, amongst film fans and particularly male film fans to kind of like venerate these directors who like really push the boundaries. Like obviously like someone like Coppola making Apocalypse Now, which literally, which resulted in the deaths of several people. Mm. Or when I think um, William Friedkin has talked about like, the stuff that he did making Sorcerer, which was put a lot of people in a lot, in harm's way. And he said that, you know, now if he were making that movie, he wouldn't ask them to do any of those things because mm. it's not worth the possibility of, of injuring people, but that the power of being a director and have been giving that level of control over realizing a vision can be intoxicating and can make things kind of dangerous. Mm. And I think there's a certain callousness that a lot of people have towards this, these kind of stories. Uh, mm-hmm. In some cases, it's literally because, like, oh, you know, all the tippy header and stuff doesn't really matter because I was I was born like twenty something years after it happened, and most of the people involved are dead. Yeah, or, you know, most of these stories, you know, you, you're just reading about them. They're just like stories in a book. They don't feel like they're real people. Whereas this, obviously, you, you can't look away from this and say. Oh no, that was just a thing that happened. It, you know, you can see that Uma Thurman is living with the con- with the consequences. Mm. And it's it's kind of telling as well that Uma Thurman's career has kind of been very much in the background. Like I'm trying to think of a polite way to say that she hasn't really done a great deal of mm. note. I mean, and she and and the 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 horrible thing about this is that it's so tied up with like agencies and who they represent and pressure being put on people to keep quiet or cover things up or do things in order to protect people who have done terrible things that you get, you get things like, you know, do you remember a few years ago that Uma Thurman was basically a punchline because Mm. a film that she'd made in that came out in Britain made like eight quid or something like one ticket was sold. And like, I'm sure that somewhere along the line, that story, like, you know, there's films that make eight quid released every week that just mm-hmm. disappear. And I dare say some of them have got more high, high profile people in the new Thurman. But I like, it's not inconceivable to think that like, that is a lot of people chuckling away at someone who, you know, they thought that she would be upsetting the apple cart by coming out. And they're kind of laughing at the fact that, she's been successfully kept quiet and pushed to the background to the degree that a film that she's made has made eight quid. Mm, and it's, yeah. if it, it, it just all like that story is, it, it might not even be related to this, but like, if you think about the whole thing as, you know, uh, an actor, like a hugely talented actor, successful actor working kind of at the top of her game, making movies, uh, like being creatively involved in every aspect and then just suddenly drops off, you know, the radar having been there and all of a sudden she's a kind of a, like a joke about, you know, a movie's not doing very well. Whereas the people who are doing really well are the people who completely fucked her over. 
Yeah. And they, you know, and they probably will all be fine, which is, yeah, not great. Yeah, it's all very distressing, uh, as as all of these stories have been. You know, there's part of it is the horrible things that happened and also that sense of just so much work lost. Like, mm-hmm. if if she had been given, you know, the opportunities to keep working and if this, you know, what had happened to her hadn't clearly overshadowed her career since then, you know, we could have got so many more great performances out of her. Instead, you know, she was confined to working in movies that hardly anyone saw. And then when did she, when she did show up in something like, you know, she's only got one scene in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. Um, like she shows up and it's like, oh my God, she's incredible. I'd forgotten how great she is. And like, where, and, and everyone's like, where's she been? And that's always like that. The same with like, you know, an Ashley Judd of Mira Savino, that whole thing of like, where have they been all this time? And then like all the stories coming out are saying, oh, this is where they've been. They can't work because powerful men in Hollywood abuse them and have stopped them from being able to, to do the sort of the, the work that they're so great at. Mm. Yeah. They get cheated. Men get caught doing something bad and then they use their power to freeze people out. And it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's appalling. And mm. the scale at which this is happening is only becoming apparent to us in you know, the non-film world. Um, yeah. And every day and every story that comes out and every day that passes with this um, atmosphere of talking about it, it just becomes less and less credible to believe that that, that no one knew this was happening. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of awkwardly shift into the awards conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, yesterday, the DGA Awards were held and a couple of notable results of that, one of which was that Jordan Peele won the award for best first film for Get Out, which mm-hmm. uh, is well-deserved. Great movie. As we said, he did great work directing it and has rightly been kind of recognised for that. And uh, Guillermo del Toro won best director for The Shape of Water. And as a lot of people pointed out, there is pretty much a one-to-one correlation between who wins the DGA and who wins the best director Oscar. Uh, only in like, I think four years have they not matched up. So it's interesting as an indicator that we may be in for a very divided year in which but like we've had recently where a bunch of movies pick up stuff because you can kind of pick up them but them and say okay well shape of water is very kind of strikingly directed but it maybe doesn't have enough uh support to win picture uh it's quite well written but maybe we should give that to ladybird or something like that and i think it'd be it's interesting that that like like we said last week that the movie a movie that on its face is very weird mm-hmm. and you think would not garner the level of support that it has, uh, is, is most likely going to walk away with uh, a best director Oscar for Guillermo del Toro. Uh, mm. And it's also just nice because that means that he kind of, that he finally gets to complete the triumvirate with Inaritu and Quaron, who obviously were all like really good friends and all kind of broke through in Hollywood at the same time in the, kind of mid 2000s and everyone always like profile the profile them together he's the last of the group to get a, an oscar mm, and kind of shows that in a weird way we talk about the oscars so white but mexican mm. directors have dominated the directing mm. categories in the last 10 years i mean has yeah. inaritu won twice Quaron yeah once. he won yeah t- he won twice Quaron won once uh i think there was also a period there was a there was a brief period where like the winner for best director hadn't been a white guy for like several years in a row. And it was like, Oh, that's pretty good. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, obviously 
not doesn't correct any of the other problems of representation and lack of work for people of color in Hollywood. But yeah, it would be quite nice to kind of continue that uh, that trend of people who aren't just yeah, because also like Ang Lee won one year as well, wasn't it? So yeah. yeah. I think the I think that was at the point at which he was the only non-white dude to win a best director Oscar. That I think he won it before um, Catherine Bigelow won hers. Yes, um, and I think that up, yeah, up to that point, it had been won by seventy-five white dudes and Ang Lee. That was yeah. the that was the the split, if you can call it that. Mm. Yeah, so that that particular pool of winners is slowly kind of diversifying a little bit, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you see the kind of pretty cool Twitter thing and the social media thing this week with, like, um, Female Filmmaker Friday, was it? Mm, I did. Where, that was very, very cool. Yeah, when you, you kind of, like, it's it's kind of heartening to have just people talking about it and mm. a lot of cool directors that like make very interesting little films who are now doing really cool stuff on television. People like, uh, Nicole Holofsener and, mm. uh, Lynn Shelton and, you know, Jane Campion do agree. She's kind of working on television a lot. A lot of the people that make films, um, and then kind of like move into more interesting stuff on television. Uh, yeah. it's quite a lot. And it's really lovely to see just how many, we talked last week about how it is appalling that neither of us could name a, uh, female DP, but like, just they are like coming through and working, and 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 like they are there, and they just have zero visibility because we get kind of intoxicated by the the kind of talking about the masters of the genre and you know all these kind of things, uh, which are all dominated by you know crusty old dudes uh, mm-hmm. who have had their their, their time, um, and it's really nice just to see people being championed and and like knowing they exist and like things like this are how it moves on and, and, and kind of picks up. It's about visibility and people seeing it and thinking, wow, that's cool, I could do that. And there you go. It, 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 I think things like that, even though it's, it's essentially just a hashtag, yeah, um, which, you know, at the best of times are vapid as shit. This is a really, really good use of, uh, of, of a kind of like a social media moment, I guess. Yeah, because, because not only are you kind of showing support, but having people like share pictures of themselves on set you know that's obviously kind of a very important thing for like you say for representation for people being able to say like young girls being able to see that and say hey you know i can i can do that um like you say but also hearing their stories as well being giving them a people a platform to talk about the movies they've made or you know people talking about you know all the first time that i you know was in charge of a set or things like that like all of these things Individually, you know, they're, they're lovely, but when you get something like this, which you can have just kind of a tidal wave of them all hitting at once, mm. it, it feels like, you know, the sort of thing that could move the needle a little bit and, and inspire people uh, and say, hey, you know, there's, you, can, you, can, you can do this. You know, this isn't just, this doesn't have to be as male-dominated an industry as it has been. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's all it is. I mean, you know, we could talk about men dominating the Oscars for best director, but that just is a simple reflection of the fact that there just is not the opportunities, uh, mm. for non-men, <laughs> non-men. <laughs> I love that's my new, uh, my new phrase, non-men to have roles. Um, and you know, if it was a more even split, then we'd see a more even reflection of that in the, uh, in the Oscars. Mm. Yeah, totally. And, and I think you are seeing, television is leading the way a little bit. I think it's still not great in terms of like 
the number of shows that are being directed by women, but there there definitely seems to be more of a movement to try and get more women involved in writing and directing shows and more people of colour. And it seems to be moving a little more swiftly there than film, if only because, like, you have so many episodes of television to direct a year and there are so many shows that there's just more opportunities <laughs> there than with the kind of the, the, the shrinking number of TV sh- of movies that are being made. And the fact that if you have a show that is already in production, you are guaranteed that you need to produce like 10, 12, 22 episodes a year and someone's got to direct them. So there's like, it definitely seems like television being a little more reactive a medium than film is helping in that regard. Yeah. And you can do something like Jessica Jones, saying, mm. right, we're going to do two, 10 episodes in season two and they're all going to be directed by a different female filmmaker every yeah. every single episode. Whereas the you know, a big studio isn't going to say, right, we're, going to, we're, we're committing to a, you know, a trilogy of movies coming out and they're all going to be directed by women um, mm. for some reason. Uh, and, you know, I'm beating around the bush of saying, like, people are looking at it as it's more low risk uh, yeah. to do it on television, um, which is an insane thing to think. Um, mm. but, uh, yeah, the stakes are so high with the money involved. No one is going to quote unquote, take a chance on an unknown quantity. Mm. Yeah. Which is, you know, depressing. Whereas in, you know, the, the slightly more kind of fertile field for, for kind of creativity on television where people aren't, are now taking like the opportunities to try new things and, and do things differently. Um, there's much more out there. Like I didn't know this because uh, she has uh, a name that could be masculine or feminine, but the director who both directed and shot and DP'd the first three episodes of The Handmaid's Tale, mm. uh, Reed, Reed Morano, that's not a dude, yes. that's, that's a woman. And yeah, yeah. like you don't see many things like You don't see that in television. You don't see someone basically Soderberging um, mm. like, a, like a thing being the director and the director of photography, because that is the two hardest jobs on the movie <laughs> being done at once, which, and they're not, they're not really mutually exclusive. They don't really like one is going to stop you from doing the other can very much stop you from doing the other. But, um, I mean, I haven't seen the Handmaid's Tale, but by all accounts, that's a pretty impressive show. And that's something that is exciting to see on television and wish that people on in the film world would take, more risks and and do things like that because you know you're gonna get stuff that's good mm, and reed morano also in terms of like starting to finally see movement from one to the other her film i think we're alone now just got really really great reviews out of uh, sundance mm-hmm. which is a kind of a post-apocalyptic movie that uh hopefully uh will kind of get seen <laughs> will kind of like come out and and launch her even further because clearly you know the the success of the handmaid's tale and her in the the centrality of her her role in in getting it made and in shooting it and directing it is a great calling card for her to kind of go on to do other things Mm. Uh, and also it just reminded me that for years and years i thought that carol reed was a woman (laughs) well the director uh, of the third man yeah, so for a, mm. for a very long time, I kind of thought, you know, well, there aren't that many women directors in Hollywood, but, you know, like, Carol Reed, at a time <laughs> when there was so much, you know, really managed to get a lot of success, and then obviously you look at it, it was like, oh, no, it was, like, it was a man, obviously. That's why <laughs> he was so successful. 
Yeah, she's like, no, yeah, you know, one ever mentions the third man as being a film made by a female director, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for that. Before we move on to the main topic, uh, we talked last week about the success that Jumanji and The Greatest Showman have had, uh, and just wanted to kind of like check in with that because Jumanji, against all odds, uh, is not only doing very, very well, it has uh, achieved something that was last achieved by one of the great, most successful movies of all time. Mm, yeah, it was. Uh, so it's gone back to number one again in the uh, the US box office, mm-hmm. and um, it is the first film to be released in December and still be top of the box office in February since Titanic, mm-hmm. which is bananas. It is, uh, and it does make me wonder where why they didn't push its best picture kind of uh, campaign harder. Because it's it's following the 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 same Jumanji uh, the same Titanic model, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and for a film that is so relentlessly okay, um, <laughs> I'm st- I'm still struggling to get my head around it because you know films like Titanic and other other such things that are really successful seem to somehow tap into a cultural moment or. You know, they, they, they do something like Titanic or Gladiator or something like that that hasn't been done in a while, like old-fashioned movie-making on a huge scale, whereas Jumanji is a video game reboot of a film that people kind of liked in the 90s mm. without any of the actors for nostalgia value, um, but somehow manages... To, well, I mean, we could still be talking about this in weeks to come. Mm-hmm. Like, The Last Jedi has dropped off some cinemas here, like in Sheffield. Like, there's it, it's over um, on Thursday, uh, like a couple of the cinemas, that's the last of it. But Jumanji's still shown four times a day. Wow! So, and that came out a week, uh, two weeks later. Yeah, I do wonder. I do wonder if the video game aspect of it is partly responsible for it because there's, you know, there's a dearth of good video game movies in terms of ones actually based on video games, but also mm-hmm. in terms of like ones that accurately depict what it is like to play a video game and i do wonder if that is part of the appeal is that people who've wanted a good video game movie are like oh yeah you should check this out and have recommended it to people or if it is like i I do think that it is has been a word of mouth success in much the same way that the greatest showman has been but i think it is of the variety of not like people being necessarily being rapturous about it but but of expectations for it starting so low that mm. people are saying, hey, you know, it's a good time, go watch it, is pretty much enough to make people kind of go, okay, I'll take a chance on it. And that's that's propelled it to nearly a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty funny how, like, I've yet to meet anyone who's seen it and been like, oh, my God, that was amazing. It was mm-hmm. like the, the, the power of something being okay <laughs> or yeah. better, than, better than expected is quite something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it feels like vindication for Jake Kasdan, the director, because the movie came out almost 10 years to the day of Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, a movie that didn't do very well, but mm. was fantastic. So kind of feels like people have finally caught on to what he's selling a mere decade later. Yeah, he's a kind of a fascinating uh, director to talk about, because um, mm. obviously he directed that movie and other comedies like, like Bad teacher mm-hmm. sex tape and you know kind of a tawdry business um but he will always 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 be the person who directed zero effect which yeah. is his, his directorial debut which to this day is still 
like one of the best alternate versions of the Sherlock Holmes film that no one has seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's like a really, really good film. And somehow he's kind of found himself into that Apatow mode of like doing kind of, uh, kind of like broad comedies. And then I think he did, he works on Freaks and Geeks, I think. Yeah. I directed some Freaks and Geeks, it says it. But then, yeah, now, I mean, obviously the world's his lobster, I guess, because Welcome to the Jungle, they're, you know, they're going to be pushing hard for that to be sequelized. Difficult to see how they will, mm. um, having seen the film. Maybe they just wait 20 years and have it resurrected as like a VR experience mm. um, thing. And, you know, the people who grow up playing that now will then go and see it. It would just be an every 20 years occurrence and it will just be molded from video game to, you know, sorry, from board game to video game to whatever the fuck kids are going to be playing in 20 years' time. And that version will earn like 1.2 billion because it will all increase exponentially from what the previous version earned. Uh, earned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the whole thing's curious. Um, I'm, and yeah, I don't really understand <laughs> it, but you know, there it is. That's the world we live in. Yes, yeah, a very, very strange one, but one that produced a show as brilliant as The Good Place. Our subject for this week, we're going to be talking about the NBC sitcom which finished its second season just this past week and uh, a, a warning up front we're probably going to be talk- we're going to be talking about events from the second season uh, but also that necessitates us spoiling some of the major events of the first season because it's quite a serialized show so if you've picked up this episode thinking oh you know should I listen should I watch the good place uh, unequivocally yes you know mm-hmm. run don't walk to your Netflix account and you know fire up and, and watch it i think in the uk all two seasons are on there in the us the first season's on there and you'll have to wait a little while for the second but it's fantastic one of the best sitcoms of the past 10 years and certainly one of my shows ever favorite shows ever but yeah from here on in we're probably going to be revealing a lot of stuff so uh, mm. if you haven't seen the show it may be time to dip out until you have and don't be tempted to cling on because part of the joy of the good place is not knowing what's going to happen mm. um because it is a show that enjoys its curveballs yes um so like don't feel like oh i'm gonna watch it but i don't mind finding out what happens because you know it's just a sitcom um yeah don't do that yeah so we'll start with the finale the season two finale um several years ago you and i back when we used to do episodes built around you know top tens we did an episode about the best season finales that were not series finales. It was mm-hmm. one of our more specific lists. Very um, specific, it sounds like. Yes, I don't remember uh, doing that. What the hell did I vote for? Uh, one of yours, I think, was the th- season three of The Office, maybe? it was. There was definitely an Office finale in there. Yeah, it sounds uh, like that. I think one of mine was The Larry Sanders Show. Also maybe season three or season four. But uh, were we to do that list again... Now, I think that this would have been, this would have been one of mine easily. I thought that the final episode of season two was so funny, so emotionally satisfying. It took the kind of cul-de-sac the show was kind of hurtling towards and kind of flipped it on its head and took things into a new exciting direction for which the show will probably abandon after two episodes when it comes back for season three but it it basically did uh, it had a, a lovely cheers reference uh that uh, i found kind of hugely hugely uh satisfying and oddly moving mm-hmm. uh, i just thought it was like a really really stunning 
ending to a really great season of television. And I'm very, usually when a show ends, I kind of like that period of wondering if it's going to be renewed because you're like, oh, I wonder if that's the last we'll see of it. But this time I was really glad to know long in advance that the third, there's a third season coming because if the show had ended at the point it does in this season, um, I, I would have been, it would have been devastating. Mm, yeah, it's... The best thing I can say... Oh, okay. It's not the best thing. Like th- This is why I find myself saying at the end of every single episode of The Good Place, I always find myself saying, wow, that was cool. I wonder how they're going to write themselves out of this. They mm. surely can't get away with this again. And every single episode, they seem to paint themselves out of the corner that mm. they have they have somehow got themselves into. It's absurdly good writing yeah it is if not the most one of the most likable casts on television and also someone pointed this out on twitter uh, yesterday if Kristen bell is only your sixth most attractive cast member <laughs> <laughs> you're doing something right mm. um but like it's it's so such a clever deconstruction of the sitcom, but also itself. Every single week, it's pulling itself apart and attempting to restructure itself. It's like building the plane in midair, is what it's mm. doing every single week. And it just keeps doing it. And like there, there's part of me when the, the end of the first season, where, again, we have stated there is spoilers in this, the end of the first season, where it's revealed that they're not in the good place, they're in the bad place. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't see that coming because I, I am, and we've discussed this before on the show, one of the easiest audience members to fall. <laughs> I very, very, very rarely pay attention to things. I try and kind of feel it rather than than kind of get lost too much in who is who and what's happening. Um, yeah. And I, I love that because every time there's a twist, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And everyone else around me is like, yeah, yeah, cool. Of course, yeah. <laughs> we saw that like hours ago um and i love that kind of ignorance is bliss type thing and i didn't see that coming and then i was like well, that's amazing and then i was like well of course they have to do that because if they carried on doing you know being in the good place this would be a very boring show mm-hmm. and then i was like well hang on fuck what are they gonna do now and then we've just spent the last 13 episodes seeing exactly how they're gonna do it where it just careens from one weird extreme to the next and we've gone from the good place to the middle place to the bad place to the pretend good place, the pretend bad place. We've been to uh, like this weird netherworld with a burrito that's a judge, <laughs> <coughs> or is it? Um, and yeah, it's it is doing things that other sitcoms don't do. Yeah. And I, I also saw this on Twitter, and I thought it was amazing. It said it's almost like every week the all the characters are owned by a sitcom. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's like it's like they are being con- all of their machinations to try and bear themselves and do everything is always put upon them by the fact that they're in a sitcom and maybe mm. that's the bad place. Yeah, I think uh, you said that they're kind of like building the plane as they're flying it. The metaphor that I came up in my notes was they're blowing up the bridge behind them as they go, <laughs> um, which is so basically they are con- they have no choice but to have kind of forward momentum and. In some respect, in some respects, like the greatest threat to the good place as a show, kind of in a meta sense, is the notion of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Because sitcoms, at their kind of their basic level, a lot of the classic sitcoms, they're essentially about 
a small group of characters who are all kind of in the same place and you don't really change things that much. Mm -hmm. Like maybe an actor leaves because of contract problems or they die. Maybe characters get involved in a romance and they end up married. But fundamentally, you don't kind of change too much. Like you couldn't have, like making friends, you couldn't have had the characters move out of their apartments until the last episode of the series because unless you have those characters flitting between those two apartments on that same small set, you don't have a show. Like, it becomes fundamentally a very different show. But with The Good Place, the status quo is constantly being, like, shaken up, you know, so much so that the show this year, you know, it had its mid-season break where it was off the air for, like, three months because of football. And then it came back and resolved the kind of cliffhanger of the, the, of the first half of the season by blowing up the good place itself like this uh pocket dimension where these characters have been kept in uh during in the first season unwittingly torturing each other and uh, that's really exciting to see as someone who's like watched way too many episodes of a sitcom to to see that that is what mike sure and his writers are doing is they are deliberately saying okay this show is a s- story of constant energy and change as as a as a work of kind of like comedic storytelling but then also for the characters themselves, the status quo is their enemy because they have to change and become better characters or they're going to be sentenced to eternal damnation in hell. And if you look at, you know, Eleanor, the Kristen Bell character, how she is in the first episode versus how she is in the most recent couple of episodes where she has become a good enough person to qualify in Maya Rudolph's eyes to qualify for, for the good place. You know, that is a huge leap that she has taken as a character or what uh, Ted Danson's character, Michael, has gone through over the course of it, where he's gone from being a demon pretending to be good to a demon who is trying to be good and Mm -hmm. is a a genuinely, like, a a character who's going through a a genuinely very moving redemption arc is is really stunning and the sort of growth that you wouldn't expect to see in a sitcom. Because most of the time you think, okay, if we change things too much, then people will lose interest and the show will get cancelled. It's pretty stunning how a show which is very kind of like philosophical and centred around ethics and sometimes, and not really, like it gets a little weighty in terms of what it's talking about. And when I say Mm. that, it means that they talk about ethics, which is more than you would expect to see in a 22-minute single-camera sitcom. But it still manages to be funny, Mm -hmm. have some depth, and also ring a fair amount of pathos throughout the whole thing from beginning to end. So, like, like, even though we kind of know it happened already in one of the alternate versions of their time in the bad place, that Cheaty and Eleanor have got together, Mm -hmm. um, when they have a kiss in the uh, last episode. Like I've not been that excited for someone to kiss in a sitcom like ever. (laughs) And then all of a sudden they were torn apart Mm. and it was, they've really earned that moment. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is, you know, we don't often see that we see the kind of the will they won't they Jim and Pam, Ross and Rachel thing kind of like dragged out in a very kind of trite fashion. Whereas this has really gone for two people who are told their soulmates don't understand each other at all, but it's so 
it seems to us the most natural and normal thing for them to be in love. Mm. And that is hard to do. Yes, and to have added in the complication, like you've said, where they have been in love at one point. In mm. the and only one of them knows it. Yes, in the 800 iterations of The Good Place that have existed, they've fallen in love at least once, possibly multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, and only one of them knows it, and we, the audience, obviously know it. But now they're kind of like feeling, like you say, they were feeling their way towards being in love with each other again. Uh, and now they've been dropped into this alternate reality where they didn't die but they also there's like they haven't gone back in time because you know it's clearly still being manipulated by Michael but they are meeting each other anew again and you know the show is starting is going to start next year again with a blank slate but rather than it being Michael trying to manipulate them to kind of torch them again trying to manipulate them to save their souls which is again it's all very exciting Hmm. Do you, what do we know when it's going to come back? Uh, probably next autumn, the same sort of time that the the second season started. So probably like September, October time. Mm, yeah, because I need it back in my life. Yeah, it's um, going to be a long wait. But it was it was lovely. You mentioned it like uh, to see Ted dancing behind a bar again, um, in a shirt with a, a tea towel over his arm. It was that thing. It was like oh. Ted Danson's behind the bar, and instantly I was like, "Oh, that's cool!" And then when he flicks, <laughs> flicks the tea towel over, yeah, I just thought, "I wonder how many times he's done that in his life." Like, <laughs> and like that's clearly made by people who are fans of Ted Danson and fans of Cheers and fans of sitcoms. But mm. also, given what Eleanor's character is like, it's such an appropriate scene, and that whole cliche of a bartender and a a drunk patron telling them their problems is so perfect for that fit. It's just such a clever show. There's so many layers to that. In in other shows, that would be a cheap gag that Ted Danson used to work behind a bar in a sitcom. Yeah. But in this show, that has, like, two or three layers, um, which is two or three more layers than any other kind of show would ever kind of... They'd never even give it that much attention or thought. Mm. And it was also... Really nice, because I rewatched the second half of the second season today, because that's all that was available on Hulu, but it's also the part of it that has kind of like the most kind of meat as far as the story goes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it felt it was good to refresh. Um, I really do appreciate how good Ted Danson is on this show. I mean, Ted Danson's great in everything. I think you and I have probably talked about him on this show more than any other actor, <laughs> mm-hmm. because he because he's so prolific and he's always such a delight in everything. But... I think, like, you know, in the first season where he's, um, you know, he gets to play up the fact that he's a demon, he doesn't quite understand humanity, and so there's lots of just kind of funny com- there's funny comedy of him being really delighted by the idea of braces and things like that. But then you get, like, the turn in the finale of season one where he reveals who he is and he kind of has that just, like, devilish smile where suddenly this benign flustered bureaucrat just like dissolves away and becomes this like demonic presence Uh, and then this year you had at the end of the episode where he had laid up this this plan to save them all from sean his boss uh and trick all of the demons into leaving the good place where he looks down at them all hiding on the train tracks and then he kind of (laughs) like the way the way he delivers the line uh 
you guys, I was so scared for you, and he's on the verge of tears. It's it's this really unique thing that he's doing where it's really, really funny that he is so emotional, but it's also it also made me cry <laughs> because like Michael as a character has never exhibited that level of concern and care for these characters ever. Mm. Uh, and the way that he does it in this this comedic onslaught was just like so so lovely and like him uh telling eleanor that he solved the trolley problem to kind of sacrifice himself even though that sacrifice doesn't last in more than like uh an episode you know it, it his his work he's so good at being just uproariously funny but also much as he was on cheers you know he had there's this kind of like real depth of feeling to everything he does which adds that extra level to everything Mm. And when he also has fun being a character who is only recently become a human mm. and is fighting with other characters that aren't human, like when he says, I'm going to say this to you, you're basic. Uh, and he's <laughs> like, that's a human insult. It's devastating. <laughs> Just the way he drops that line. And there's another one in the last episode, the finale, where... Uh, his boss says that he's got to read all those New Yorkers. He's like, you know, I never read those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his delivery is so perfect. Um, yeah. It sounds a very hackneyed thing to say about things like this, but you, you just cannot see anyone else in that role now. Mm. Like, he, yeah, is, he, he has brought so much dance into that. Yeah, I think you could you feel that about pretty much every role. Like, every character and every actor is so perfectly fitted to that role like Kristen Bell who I've been a fan of since you know Veronica Mars so that's going on like 15 years at this point but whatever how how long it's been since that show came out she is so good at being funny and heartfelt but also really kind of like spiky and biting if she needs to be so she's perfectly suited to that character Jamila Jamil who I don't think has acted in anything before but obviously has done lots of stuff on TV in the UK T4 and whatnot Mm mm-hmm is so absurdly good at playing this kind of flighty name dropping narcissistic aristocrat that mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't credit that this was pretty much the first thing she's ever done yeah. as a, as an actor it's like she is so funny there's that line in the burrito episode where she says um <laughs> i didn't even get to say goodbye not, not even a little toodaloo and it's like <laughs> it's such a wonderful like uh, sad but funny delivery. Yeah, it's, it's it's really incredible just how perfect everyone is in the show. Mm. And uh, I very much enjoyed the line she had about uh, Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. And she was like, when she met him at a party, and she was like, oh, yes, I had to pretend your whole thing wasn't tiresome. Uh, yeah. So like, That's the this- second uh, great slam on Johnny Depp in that episode, the other one of which is that there's a poster in the background for Pirates of the Caribbean 6, the haunted crow's nest or something, who gives a crap, <laughs> playing everywhere forever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And also, you know, it's worth noting that, like, um, there's no finer television show that, um, well, like, has, like, food puns in it. In mm. every, every iteration of The Good Place had pun food outlets that did that focus on a different type of food. One of my favourite ones, and it's it's so niche. Yeah, was uh, biscotti pippin, <laughs> <laughs> which is just so fucking stupid. But there it is, writ large. 
literally yeah. writ large on a wall in a sitcom. Biscotti Pippin is yeah. that's a great pun. You got to you got to admit it. I loved it when Megan Amran, who is obviously who's one of the writers, um, posted on Twitter just a long list of unused pun names they had thought of because it it just speaks so much to what that writer's room must be like, and that they say, okay, we need a hundred names for for restaurants that are going to sell only going to sell bisque. Mm-hmm. What can you give me? And then just coming up with like absolutely insane ones. Also in terms of performances, like uh, William Jackson Harper is great as Cheedy. That he's so good at being, he's so good at being passive and mm-hmm. indecisive, which are not uh, characteristics that you would expect to be compelling in a sitcom character. But he does. He's so he's so compelling and interesting as a kind of a, an ethics professor and someone who is so concerned with you know the the moral landscape of the universe uh and you know he he also can do the kind of like the fast-paced thing really well where he has where in like maybe the third or fourth and final episode of the season where he's saying like i have concerns which could turn into worries and maybe eventually become fears okay they're fears uh (laughs) like the way in which he just kind of like tosses off that kind of run is is really great Manny Jacinto as as Jason is uh, he's just he's just one of the best sitcom characters ever created. He is so good at being just kind of like profoundly lovably dumb. Mm. Uh, and this like is a character he, who is who is a amateur DJ uh, <laughs> kind of bro who sold fake drugs to kids and yes. died by being locked in a safe and suffocating to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> literally doesn't understand any situation he is in, but is yeah. a endless mine of comedy. Yeah, one of my favourite lines of his is when they all think that Michael has betrayed them, he says, why is it always the one you most suspect? <laughs> uh, which is great. And... Um, in the, the finale, he has a great line where he lists all of the crazy, all of the things that have happened to them, and he goes, "This has been one of the craziest years of my life." And it's funny on its on itself, but then Cheedy's up to the side and just goes, "What of them?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's so so good the way that like all four of those characters, it, it has that rare, very rare thing in a sitcom where there is just that perfect chemistry that none of it works if you take one of the characters out mm. uh, and obviously darcy carden as janet and all of her various permutations mm-hmm. uh, including bad janet and uh, my favorite drunk janet uh, when she gets those magnets on her and she just spends the whole time just being kind of really out of it but still trying her best to help everyone uh, i think yeah like you say it's, it's just such a perfect ensemble everyone in it chimes so well with each other and is one of those things where you look at it and you say you can pair off any two of these characters with each other and something great and funny will happen because they all bounce off of each other and have their own distinct energy and their own distinct kind of comedic engine that kind of determines their point of view and and when you have them all together it can also be really great like in the episode where they destroy the good place where they figure out that Michael was giving them clues and then Eleanor says, okay, let's all 
kind of walk to get to the train station but go there separately and try not to look inconspicuous and then all four of them try and sneak away in different ineffective ways of sneaking off until they all bump back into each other uh and it's a really great showcase for all of them having really good physical comedy chops but also how great it is whenever those four are all together like that Mm. it's also worth noting that for the first few episodes maybe even more I found the Tahani character grating because Mm -hmm. it felt a little like what generally seems to happen quite a lot in American shows. There is a character that speaks the way that Americans think all British people speak. Mm. But I have to say that after two seasons, I I think they've, A, really leaned into it. (laughs) And B, just made it work by making her... A funny character on the basis that she's incredibly spoiled and privileged, mm-hmm. but every joke that she makes is generally at her own expense, yes. unknown to her, which undercuts it. And that makes it, that kind of makes it appealing to British people because we like to see people, uh, you know, self deprecation is, you know, one of our favorite traits. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and it, they, they, I really hated her character at first and I really, really like her now. I, I also think that. It's due to the the structure of the first season where so much of it is built around twists and hiding information from the audience that her character is not really necessarily that important mm-hmm. to Eleanor's story until you realise that they all have discovered that they're not meant to be in the good place and then they can kind of... Once they're able to be more open and honest with each other and you realise like you, it starts to delve into her psyche it's obviously going to make her more likable because until then she's almost kind of a foil to Eleanor. She seems suspicious of her and they're always kind of at odds with each other. And in this second season, they're not rivals at all. In fact, in one uh, iteration, they're soulmates. And I think that that helps a lot with... I think that's, that's one of the key changes, I think, between the first season and the second season is like the first season is all built around twists. You know, um, it's often compared to Lost and Drew Goddard directed, who, who worked heavily on Lost, I think directed the pilot and is still listed as a producer. The show, every episode kind of ends with a revelation. Like, mm-hmm. it's like one episode would be like, oh, you know, uh, the monk is not really a monk. He's a guy named Jason or whatever, and he can talk and all this sort of stuff. He, do, he thinks he doesn't belong in the good place as well. And every episode builds to that. And the second season doesn't really have that quite so much. It's really more built around, like, revealing things and acknowledging that the audience are now aware of its tricks. Yeah. So for, you know, to go back to the episode where they destroy the good place, we know that Michael is not going to betray them because mm-hmm. we've seen his journey. We know that he's, he's, he must have some sort of a plan. So what we're trying to do is trying to suss out what his, what his plan is and how everyone's going to kind of get out of this situation. Like, I think that that is an important evolution for the show because it couldn't just be kind of like, constantly revealing a thing at the end of every episode and making you kind of gasp it has to it has to shift and i think that that change where you are either revealing something new about a character or revealing some deeper element of the world and the show's mythos makes more sense for it kind of being a thing that can sustain itself not just like narratively but just in terms of like pacing because twist after twist after twist after twist it becomes very boring after a while Mm, yeah they've got to balance it i wonder if 
they've got a limited shelf life shelf life for this show. I wonder mm. if they've got a four seasons and out type kind of structure in mind. It certainly seems like the fact that Michael Shaw has said that they're going to stick to these shorter runs of 12 episodes each certainly seems to suggest that they have an end date in mind or, or that they have a kind of broader view of what the, the show is. Because, yeah, like, I remember when watching the first episode thinking, wow, this is really great and ambitious, but I have no idea how this show sustains itself. Because mm-hmm. at a certain point, you know, aren't you just going to have Eleanor eventually be uncovered or is she going to constantly be like trying to stay one head of Michael and the way in which the show has unfolded so far suggests that they know this can only go on for so long and that may in fact be part of the reason why it's got a third season like I don't I think the show ratings wise has done pretty well Mm -hmm. um by NBC's still very meager standards um you know, it hasn't lost a huge amount of audience from season to season and people are picking it up on Netflix and I think it's got a a global brand because of Netflix airing uh, the episodes the day after worldwide. I think that that... But but I think the thing that would most contribute to NBC taking a chance on it is, you know, they've had a long uh, partnership with Michael Schur now through the, through the office, through Parks and Rec they're willing to kind of like say, okay, you've got this idea for a conceptually very ad- uh, adventurous show that's, but you also aren't planning to kind of like spin this thing out for too long. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always, that is the very worst thing about sitcoms full stop. Um, mm. Like I had this conversation earlier with uh, my wife and my brother-in-law is that, you know, they were talking about the American office, the U S office and, you know, outstaying your welcome is, perhaps the worst thing you can do in a sitcom because I mm. love the U S office, but I never think about it in terms of my favorites because those, the last season and a half are so unnecessary and they, they, they push if it had have ended where Michael Scott left, it would have been practically perfect mm. um, for that, that show's run. And it really just undoes all the good work. And it, I mean, that's maybe a bit harsh. It just, it, it really is a kind of like a, like a black mark on his name. And yeah. with this, when the concept is so, like you say, ambitious uh, and out there, like they really need to keep it tight, keep it short and, and, you know, get in and get out with what they need to do. And, mm. you know, if that means leaving us wanting more, then that might just have to be the case. So rather they didn't ruin it. Yeah, and Mike Schur is is obviously a hugely brilliant writer and he's assembled a great team. I could see this show running for like 200 episodes and it's it's pretty good, but as like a show that doesn't have that that narrative drive that the show has currently. You know, if they had just said, okay, it's set in the afterlife, it's these people trying to be good people and then you kind of keep coming up with plots surrounding them. It could You could have seen it kind of like going on for, for ages and ages and ages, but I think that there is a sense of like uh, a candle that, you know, a light that burns twice as brightly, lasts half as long or whatever mm. uh, about it all. That it's much better that they have just really thrown everything they have at this thing and are barreling forward at a pace that most shows wouldn't even dream of that makes it so good because you do feel you very rarely have an episode of The Good Place of all 24 that have aired so far, but you rarely have an episode that feels like dead weight. Like mm-hmm. it's always moving something forward in the plot or the characters are being deepened. And I think that 
that is uh, the advantage of having like short, concise seasons and of having this kind of very big, ambitious story that is being kind of like burned through at a quite staggering rate. Uh, best illustrated by the start of this, for the second season, where you know the previous season had ended with. Uh, Eleanor and everyone having their minds reset but she had a message she'd left a message for herself in Janet's mouth and Janet gives it to her and you think okay so the second season is going to be all about them trying to put the pieces together and figure it all out and then by the like the third episode Michael said okay I'm going to stop resetting you because this uh, because this isn't working Uh, and I think that is a sign of just how confident they are in their ability to kind of tell the story at the pace that suits it as opposed to the pace that would necessarily suit like the demands of a normal network sitcom and that also shows as well how kind of confident they are with with what you know what they're doing that they Mm -hmm. can just say right we can rush through what most sitcoms would spend a season and a half doing in two episodes And, you know, we will about face whenever we want. And it's, that is, you can't do that unless you're kind of brimming with confidence in your material. Mm. And that's why it's such a, an amazing show to watch because you're, you're watching, you know, bravado each week. Mm. Um, and, um, it's kind of thrilling and exciting because we don't get to see that very often. And I kind of, weirdly, I think, I feel like, because on we get it in the UK as it's on Netflix as like a Netflix exclusive, mm-hmm. um, which it isn't, I believe, is an is NBC show. Um, yeah, it airs on NBC over here, and then in the way that like Netflix did, I think first with Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. like it airs over here, and then the next day it debuts. I think everywhere on Netflix. Yeah, I mean that is kind of awesome that it's allowed people to discover it all at the same time. Mm, so like, yeah. you know, huge bunches of people that we know are like, right, I'm all caught up in the good place or I'm like, Oh, what's the good place show? I can just smash it all and, and get through it. Cause I mean, I think you recommended it to me and I mm. watched all of the first season in like two days. Yeah. And then the second season started the following day. So I was like, oh, okay, right, I'm in now. Um, and I've watched it like weekly. And I, I I really love that fact that everyone has been discovering it and it's like this kind of thing that we haven't had to wait for and catch. It's like there, because yeah. this is what Netflix is great for. Um, but now we have to wait, which is annoying. Mm. And I think it's it's always nice when something like that happens where everyone suddenly becomes uh, an evangelist for the show mm-hmm. but not in kind of like the super pushy it's like what you haven't watched that you should be watching it how dare you you're a terrible person it's more just like people recommend it to people or and, and when they see someone say hey start in the good place the response is everyone being like oh, you've got so much to look forward to and just being really excited for someone to discover it for themselves Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's very nice. It feels very positive. It feels very in keeping with the the tone of the show because the sh- the show is this really positive vision of the world, which also which essentially is built entirely around the idea that it's hard to be good but worthwhile, and even if it's frustrating, it's worth the effort. Best illustrated by this the the, the finale where Eleanor you know, has her near-death experience and, you know, 
decides to turn her life around and then in the process her life becomes demonstrably worse than it was <laughs> yeah uh, but she's she, she really does you know make a go of it and for it for it spends like six months trying to be a good person uh i feel like that's like a really that's the a kind of big bold message that you don't really get from a lot of sitcoms you know it, not only is it one of the funniest shows on television it has a very serious moral message which is yes it's difficult to be good but it's something you should try to do <laughs> Because it, it being good is its own reward, essentially. And it does that through fart jokes and references to Emmanuel, Emmanuel Kant. Which, mm. you know, is not something that every sitcom... You can say about every sitcom. Maybe the Big Bang Theory, but mm. it wouldn't really... They would just throw it out as a reference. They wouldn't interrogate his ideas through uh, sitcom uh, format. Yeah, it's a very um, slim part of the Venn diagram of uh, mm-hmm. fart jokes and Kant. Yes. But yeah, it's um that I mean and that's why people are like like you're into it because you know, we've seen a lot of what the sitcom has to offer and yeah. you know, a, a kind of a like a kind of cuckoo bananas high concept sitcom that, that really shifts its the goalposts every week um mm. with um consummate skill is, you know, worth celebrating and you know, mm. here we are talking about it. Uh, are there any other kind of like highlights of this season you want to kind of talk about? For me, I think Jason Manzuka's showing up as Derek. Yeah, uh, I mean Jason Manzuka's boyfriend. Yeah, J- Jason Manzuka's showing up in it because at the same time as I've been watching this, I've been watching Brooklyn Nine Nine, where mm. he, he shows up as a rogue element, <laughs> should we yes. say, in that show. And again, in this, but a kind of a very simple-minded one who has wind chimes for a penis. Yes. Um, I would watch a spin-off show with I'd watch a spin-off show with just him in the medium place with the coke obsessed stockbroker, what Mindy Sinclair is that name? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'd yeah, watch a whole spin-off of that. Yeah, their their relationship, which I'm sure would be horrifying, mm. uh, but also sweet. Like she's finally getting a bit of happiness uh, mm-hmm. in the form of cocaine. But yeah, no, he was great. Uh, he he fulfilled the Mike Shaw trifecta because he's been on Parks and Brooklyn Nine Nine and. Uh, the Good Place. I think the only other person who's done that is Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean. I particularly liked when he came back and he could say no words other than his own name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Jason Manzoukas is the sort of person who can make the word Derek mean 85 different things. Mm. Uh, and there's just like, he's like, Derek. Derek? <laughs> Maximum Derek. <laughs> Which is my favourite phrase of the year so far. Maximum Derek. Yeah, that he's kind of like the Groot of the uh, the sitcom <laughs> world, he's probably got yeah. a whole script and everything with just his lines as Derek. Yeah, and also just my favourite uh, single joke was when uh, when Sean um, makes Michael put on uh, Transformers deodorant, uh, <laughs> and then when Eleanor next sees him, he says, "How do you smell loud and confusing?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, which is, which is fantastic. I like the um, when they got lost. Or they had to wait in the museum in the penultimate episode where it was the museum mm. of of like human awfulness, but it was not so terrible that they could um that they would be rumbled, but it was like mm. there was an exhibit of the person who said, "I need a vacation from my vacation for the first time." <laughs> it was just like small irritating things like that um, the first man was... to say actually to a woman was one as well <laughs> yeah, absolutely, but yeah I, yeah it's. It's full of those moments and it's just full of invention and, you know, and that's what 
I'm drawn to. I mean, I'm drawn to uh, Parks and Recreation and The Office and and It's Always Sunny and 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 the rest of them all all for different reasons, but they're they're all fairly similar in terms of what they're setting out to do. Whereas mm. this just feels like a weird, bold experiment that somehow is still going. Yeah, it's incredible. And and just one point, I think we could have stood to have seen more of the cast dancing to Lord's Greenlight in uh, that episode where they destroy the good place. Because yes. that was a lovely moment that didn't go on nearly long enough. A good 30 seconds more of it would have been would have been enough for my taste. But they they teased us with the possibility of a dance of a dance montage and it kinda didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a shame. I mean So that's that's a note for season three, Mike Shaw, more dance montages. Yeah, absolutely. So we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to enjoy? What have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, we've got a first this week that I'm going to recommend something I don't really like. Um, Great. But I'm gonna, we talked about it before the show. Um, I'm going to recommend a movie called Colossal uh, to the listeners out there, which, and the reason I'm recommending it is whilst I didn't really like it because, uh, I mean, it's a film in which... Anne Hathaway plays a kind of uh, 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 ne'er-do-well, a New York kind of spoiled brat who goes out drinking all the time and has lost her job as a blogger and is kind of indulging in self-destructive behaviour. And she has to return to her hometown with a tail between her legs, kind of like small-town, kind of Americana-type place. And um, she... Um, finds out that she is in some way psychically linked to a giant monster which is currently um, wreaking havoc in um, Seoul, Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, two very disparate sides of the, of the movie that somehow fit together, and I don't think the film works at all, but the two halves of the film <laughs> are great. Um, and I would recommend it, and I'm going to recommend it to everyone because I'm so glad that films like that exist. Uh, yeah. Strange, peculiar... Um, kind of films that really defy any easy categorization. It's on Amazon Prime or Prime Video as it's now been uh, rebranded in the UK. Um, and it's certainly worth watching, especially if you're a fan of the director's work. He previously did a film called Time Crimes, which is like a, a kind of like little scene time travel film, which is like really smart and clever, kind of Spanish language one. But yeah, like Colossal, you want to see someone shooting for the moon and we don't see it often enough. And uh, I'm not entirely sure he gets near, but good God, is it weird. Um, and, like, totally worth seeing. Yeah, I, I think I liked it more than you did, but I do think it's a movie that people should see because I don't... I think there have been very few films this year that have had such diametric responses from everyone I know who has seen it. Mm. Like, it is only people who hate it or love it. Or I guess you're you're somewhere in the middle and that you like parts of it but don't think it works. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a movie that I, I'm always in favour of movies that generate a very strong reaction. I am going to recommend a movie from 1993 called The Piano, which is a movie directed by Jane Campion, which uh, was nominated for Best Picture and was a huge hit back in the 90s and has somewhat been marred by the fact that its music has been used in a series of bank ads in the UK, which I had forgotten about until I started watching it. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember hearing this music ad nauseum for, for like four or five years. But, uh, you know, like you and I are both trying to see more movies directed by women. And mm-hmm. uh, in, to that end, I'm, I'm going through Jane Campion's filmography. And uh, so far I've liked everything I've seen, but I'm going to particularly talk about the piano because 
it was a movie that I went into with a certain expectation of, which, you know, I thought, okay, it's going to be like a prestige Regency drama, kind of like sub uh, Merchant's Ivory. I don't know why I thought this. This was just like the assumption I had. Just like, okay, it's a period movie that was nominated for an Oscar. Surely it can't be, you know, that interesting. Uh, and it is, you know, it's it's a really fascinating movie about power dynamics between men and women. It's got this really weird uh kind of retelling of bluebeard worked into the story uh to an extent the performances in it are uniformly great from holly hunter who won an oscar for it anna paquin also won an oscar for it uh harvey keitel is is very good in it although um his accent is you know he doesn't inquire quite remove the new york from his accent playing someone who i think is meant to be from new zealand or mm-hmm. ireland or uh, anywhere it's very hard <laughs> he doesn't quite hide it but he is very very good uh and sam neil uh playing a very good nice guy who is not necessarily all that nice uh which uh is kind of perfect for him as someone who's always been kind of like baby-faced and easy to like uh so so he he kind of adds a, a darkness to his general kind of a, his general persona in this which uh, i found very very effective uh and it's it's really really great and people should check it out. It's currently on Filmstruck over here in the US, along with most of Jane Campion's work. Check it out. It is not just kind of Oscar bait in the way that I had uh, I had believed it to be. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Uh, please leave us a review and a rating. Uh, recommend us to your friends. It's the, the best way for us to grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.